As the son of a son of a sailor, I went out on the sea for adventure, expanding the view of the captain and crew like a man just released from indenture. As a dreamer of dreams and a traveling man, I have chalked up many a mile. Read dozens of books about heroes and crooks, and I learned much both of their style. Son of a son, son of a son, son of a son of a sailor. Welcome back. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk, News Talk, WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5 FM. One of my favorite songs, favorite singers, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. It's almost margarita time, isn't it? It sure is, somewhere Uh, in the world. Somewhere in the world, it's too early. Please join me in welcoming our guest. We have Chris Soren here. He is the co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewables. Welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to have you here. We want to talk about what you're doing relative to Ocean Renewable Power Company. You guys are doing some innovative thing, and you know, energy is certainly in the forefront of uh, much uh, policy and what's going on both here in Maine and around the world. But let's talk a little bit about your background first in terms of where you grew up and went to school, and then we'll talk about how what led you to uh, being in this field. Okay. Would love to do it. Where would you grow up, Chris? Well, I'm uh, I'm a Midwest boy. I uh, actually was born in Peoria, Illinois, and uh, interestingly, I didn't see an ocean for the first time until I was almost 20 years old. Really? So a little counterintuitive because yeah. now, now you had a company called Ocean Renewables. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in a way, it was an advantage. I uh, I came to the business with a deep background in electricity business, as I say, in generating and in in trading and uh, distributing electricity. Uh, but uh, the fact is, uh, I didn't have any preconceived notions about the ocean, and uh, so did you I, study engineering and technology? Yeah, I in I, uh, I I graduated from the University of Illinois, uh, a degree in uh, civil engineering, majored in structural design. Uh, I started my career actually designing bridges. And I did that for a few years, and honestly, I got cable very, or span, or I, I love uh, I love they, me a good bridge. Uh, they were mostly either uh, either uh, concrete or steel girder bridges, uh, both uh, highway bridges and and railroad bridges. Really? Yeah. This uh, may seem strange, and Deb, how many you you know because we've known each other for like thirty years, right? Sure. How many times I talk about my love of bridges? Oh, oh a lot. I think I think it is kind of an overlooked infrastructure uh, element because everyone goes over bridges like i drove over a bridge under a bridge today people just take them for granted but in many ways they're they're kind of fascinating in terms of like the structural support and depending on if you have span bridges or the you know golden uh, gate bridge you know a lot that, of different types yeah. yeah bridges don't get enough love no they don't but i i love them and i uh uh i, I drive my wife nuts sometimes because if i'm driving across a really beautiful bridge I've, i have to stop and take a picture yeah, and we have uh, a couple of nice bridges here in Maine, right? Yeah, we do. In fact, the newer bridges are actually very, uh, very nice, very pleasing architecturally. So uh, it's also to me, you know, it's it's both the architect and the aesthetic, but just the engineering and the precision yeah. because you have so much weight both in the bridge itself and has to carry so much weight, and especially bridges built a hundred years ago before you had computers and technology and laser beams. Yeah, it had to be precise because if if you don't have the right support in the middle, you know, 
if they don't meet they in the fail. middle, you got a problem. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I love about today's bridges. Typically, they start on both sides yep. because it's an efficient way, and they have a barge or something in the middle, and they bring up, and they've got to be the tolerance has got to be you know within hundreds of an inch. Yes, and yeah. then they wait for the sun to be high or low because the metal contracts or Absolutely. expands. Again, well, this is fascinating, I guys. Love, yeah. <laughs> you know, I will look at them differently now because when I go over a bridge, I'm always looking at what's under the bridge, yeah. the oh, river yeah. or the mountains or whatever's under Well, me. I don't even want to get into tunnels because I, <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. love me some tunnels, too. Yeah, yeah. But bridges, you know, we talk about America's infrastructure, and without bridge technology and, you know, during the Highway Act, we wouldn't have had the connectivity we had in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. We wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution to the extent we had because the country is made up of valleys and topography and rivers and you you need bridges. Yeah, yeah, you do. We wouldn't have the interstate system without them. So. Yeah, or Howard Johnson's, which yeah. just went out of business <laughs> last year. Boy, I love me some banana ice cream. Oh, yeah. That was one of the original 28 flavors. I know. And now they're all gone. So anyhow, we 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 uh, we digress. We have, is is it pronounced sour? It's sour. Sour. It's like sauerkraut without the kraut. Gotcha. We have Chris Sauer here. He is uh, co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewables. So, what brought you from the world of bridges and your engineering background to start getting involved in uh, ocean science? Well, it was a it was a, a long journey. Uh, I I uh, honestly uh, got bored designing bridges. Um, After we just covered this yeah, for 10 well, minutes, Well, uh, when you get into all the minutiae of the calculations, and by the way, uh, to show my age, when I started designing bridges, uh, I did it with a slide rule. Really? Yeah. That's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, back in the 60s. So uh, uh, it's come a long, long ways. Do, they, have... do they even use slide rules now? No. No, no. Because not. I remember in math class, you had to have a, I mean, I didn't attend many math, math classes, but I was told I was supposed to have a slide rule. And even yes. that was fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I have my slide rule I actually inherited from my father. So it dates back to 1930, and I still have the slide rule. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. So uh, then how did your career progress from well, there? Well, so I, I left, uh, I, I joined a, a, a big architect engineering firm uh, that was uh, basically designed and built energy facilities. So that's basically what I got into the uh, the energy business. Uh, from the technical end, I, uh, I managed uh, groups of engineers, sometimes uh, the biggest project. I had 40 engineers working for me. Um, and I progressed. Uh, and what type of area of energy? I know you're focusing now with ocean renewables. But uh, initially, my first project was a coal gasification plant in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and then uh, I left uh, that company, went with another company where we uh, designed and built the uh, coal handling systems back in the days of the coal-fired power plants in the 70s. And, um, uh, but in the, in the late 70s, uh, I got involved. I, I got asked because uh, the, the company I worked for recognized that I had a good rapport with the, the customers we were serving, and they asked me to take a sales position. Uh, and I had zero background in sales or marketing. They I wanted never... to take an engineer and make him a salesman. Yeah, well, I had the gift of the gab, I guess. And uh, well. And at any rate, so I got into the deal-making business uh, back then where we were combining the engineering and construction of facilities with financing and operations. Uh, and I had neither background in, in sales or in finance, but uh, I had a lot of good mentors. I learned quickly, uh, which led me to the early 80s when it was the birth of the cogeneration industry here in the U.S. where uh, in 1978 we, we passed a law called PURPA, Public Utility Regulatory Policy Act, which was the beginning of the deregulation 
of the electricity business. And it basically said if you were uh, generating electricity and at the same time providing useful thermal energy to an industrial host, uh, under those conditions, you could sell your power to the utility and they had to buy it at their, mm-hmm. quote, avoided cost. So I was one of the early ones in that business in the early 80s, and, and uh, I, I ended up doing uh, a lot of different develop, uh, a lot of different, uh, about $2 billion worth of cogeneration facilities, everything from uh, waste coal using uh, the slag from both anthracite and uh, bituminous mining to uh, biomass, did the, uh, uh, actually the largest uh, biomass uh, plant in the United States in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, burning bagasse, which is the waste from the operation of making sugar. The biggest project I did was an 800 megawatt coal-fired cogeneration plant actually in Florida that provided steam to a citrus processor. Basically, they used it to concentrate orange juice and uh, grapefruit juice. It was pretty cool, uh, and and what we did is we we would develop the project, we'd do all the permitting, we'd we'd uh, negotiate all the contracts, we uh, you know the, including fuel and the construction contracts, and then we owned and operated, and we sold sold electricity. So that that was my real uh, strength, being able to pull all of those things together. Great. We have Chris Sauer here. He is a co-founder and also a CEO of Ocean Renewables power company here in Maine, right? Here in Maine, headquartered in Portland. So we're going to talk about that in a sec. But to back up, it feels like in your kind of review of your background, you spent a lot of time uh, around coal relative to engineering and setting up the plants. And coal has been in the news lately uh, in kind of a political way. I think it's fairly well known to most people that over the last decade or so, a lot having to do with natural gas and renewable energies, that coal is considered an old energy source. And there's areas of the country, particularly maybe West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, where the economy has been negatively impacted. And our current president, uh, Deb, President Trump, President Trump, yes. Deb's good friend, uh, he actually campaigned, and he he specifically brought up coal, like he did many things. I believe he. Yes, pro- he did. I, I'm many sure things, he tweeted yes. about it. So you know, sure. a 3 a.m. tweet carries a lot of you know heavy policy weight. Sure. And when he spoke to coal miners, and when he was campaigning, and he was going to do huge things and great things, he promised to bring coal back in a big way or a huge way, and he promised. And I've seen all kinds of reports on 60 Minutes and on the news where here you have these communities of people, thousands of people, to no fault of their own, but the industry is evolving, the energy industry is evolving. And now that we have President Trump, everyone's waiting to see if he fulfills his promise on uh, reinvigorating coal, whether that's through reducing policy hurdles or Clean Air Act or just telling everyone to please use more coal, and it felt sort of absurd to me. It felt like, you know, in the in the 20th century, coal was the, you know, maybe you know, 20, 19th century, wood was the a primary energy uh, fuel. In the 20th century, coal, and the 21st century, oil, or you know, and now we're moving into renewables. What's your thought about coal? And, and does it have a future, or is it naturally evolving to cleaner energy, more efficient energy? Yeah, I think it's um, 
It's basic economics, uh, honestly. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, I, I did uh, do a lot of work uh, in coal plants. And by the way, the coal plants we built uh, at the time were the cleanest coal plants in the country. I mean, we put all the bells and whistles on them. But be, but, but was it because of EPA standards? Because there's been over the last few decades lots of standards in terms of scrubbers, yeah. lots of standards in terms of Clean Air Act. So. I'm sure you would have done it anyhow, but the government played a real role saying yeah, no, they we did. need to do something and to we clean had a very, the emissions. We had a very collaborative approach with the agencies, but we actually did more than what was required. Great. Uh, the company I worked for at the time it was a, a joint venture between Bechtel and Pacific Gas and Electric. And uh, as, as uh, one of the principles of the company, we were going to always be out in front. But you got back in that time, the reason that coal was big then is that actually natural gas, gas was being rationed because they said there wasn't enough of it. So we couldn't use it for power generation because there's not enough natural gas to go around. It's got to be used for the highest and best use. Um, Now, uh, fast forward to today where we have fracking and we have an overabundance of natural gas and it's very cheap. Um, It's a completely uh, different situation. So forget about uh, regulations, forget about policy, the basic economics are that coal is not competitive. It's right. just that simple. And, and and I think part of that has to do with certainly economics, because I think that drives many things. But there's also environmental issues, right? Because no matter oh, there, what you do, is. coal yeah, they, is a dirtier fuel. Yeah, they, they talk about clean coal, but that's really, of course, a fallacy. And you, you scrub the emission a little bit more, yeah, and there's more fuel, you know, yeah, filters and, and, and all that. Yeah, and you scrub it, then what do you do with the residue? I mean, there's... there's um, I mean, it's cleaner than it ever was. Um, it's it's not the dirty coal of the early nineteenth uh, or middle nineteenth twentieth uh, uh, century, but um, it's it's never going to be as clean as natural gas, right? And natural gas is never going to be as clean as renewables. It's just that simple. Now, what's happened is natural gas is very cheap. Um, it's a finite resource. At some point, it will run out. Uh, you know, they're saying it'll be fifty or hundred years now, but at some point, it runs out. And the way that I look at this is uh, that natural gas is really the perfect bridge right now uh, to get from where we were, which was mostly coal, to where we're going to be, which is renewables. And uh, natural gas is the perfect uh, segue uh, into the future uh, of of renewables. It's unfortunate that so many people's lives are affected by uh, the uh, non-competitiveness of coal. But if you look back in some of these same areas uh, uh, back in the 60s, what happened with steel mills, for instance, right. uh, you know, the same thing. The, the, it, it was economics. The, the it, wagon it, industry really suffered when the yeah, cars came online. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how many people make buggy whips today? So, I, and I feel for uh, operators. When was yeah. the last time you called 411 for information on how to get yeah. the Falmouth <laughs> pizza? <laughs> yeah. Like there's only four people. I, I did it the other day. I called 411 and I think the person was sleeping. <laughs> and it was like, four, one, hello, can I help you? It's like, yeah, I just wanted to see if you're there. Uh, yes, can I help you, sir? Yeah. And she just, she, you know, she seemed a little upset. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, unfortunately, uh, people's lives are affected, uh, you know, and I don't want to get into, into public policy. But it's happened before. It will happen again. Right. Uh, we just need better programs to deal with that. Yeah. And before we, we have uh, Chris Sauer here, he is the co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewables Power Company based here in Maine. You mentioned natural gas. That's an issue for some Mainers in that uh, recently it has popped up uh, in a few different places here in 
Southern Maine in Yarmouth, Falmouth, and Cumberland. Summit recently came in and made a commitment. There's a big pipeline that I think uh, goes through Cumberland Fairgrounds. And some of that doesn't come from, I forget, the uh, reserve in Pennsylvania, but it comes from north from uh, Canada. But what's, what's your prognosis for natural gas in terms of it being a resource? Because every time uh, on either side of the political spectrum or the business spectrum where people either get overly uh, conservative or overly optimistic on a fuel source, I think it hurts the argument because I remember in the 70s when gas was being rationed and a lot of that had to do with OPEC kind of controlling and artificially controlling supply, that everyone was like, hey, fuel is running out. I remember recently uh, in terms of, you know, the push for solar and renewable, uh, and I believe we're on a planet with finite natural resources, so at some point, but when people say we only have 10 years left or 20 years left, that's different than 200 years. And do we have better insight now, whether it is oil or natural gas, yeah, what the reserves are as opposed to people guessing and then getting it wrong? Yeah, we, we do, obviously. We have much better technology today, uh, but then the methods used to extract some of these uh, fuels, um, you know, there's some downsides to those. So um, however you look at it— you're, talk, you're talking about fracking and people having flames coming out in their kitchen. Yeah, those, those, right? those ty- or, or a little bit of a, a little bit of a downside, yep. and, you, and you see tremors all over the place because with fracking, high-pressure water and chemicals— or shot into the ground, which releases, you know, yeah. and it literally fracks the, you know, I forget the layer of the earth, but it, it fractures the ground, allowing gas to come up. But yeah, it's causing earthquakes and tremors all over the place, and, and natural gas is coming out on kitchen sinks. It, it's uh, bit so of there, downside. There, there's some downside. Yeah, right. there's some downside, but there's abundance of, of uh, natural gas. The, the problem with fossil fuels, uh, I look at it a little differently. Fossil fuels require big plants, okay? You don't build a small gas-fired plant. You don't build a small coal plant. You've got to build a big plant. And so it means you've got to transmit that electricity from big plants long distances in order to get it to the, to the people and the businesses that actually, that actually use it and need it. Um, the, the renewable energy uh, scenario is much different. It's, it's much more of a distributed generation. We refer to it as distributed generation where they're much smaller plants. They're, they're right where they need to be um, so that you don't, it, it, it cuts down on, first of all, transmission losses, because when you transmit power long distance, there's losses involved. Right. And second of all, it eliminates a lot of the distribution and transmission infrastructure, power lines that are needed because it's being generated where it's used. So I, th- I see the future model, which really favors renewable energy, being much more distributed generation, smaller plants where it's needed, um, and therefore the fossil plants, which are the big behemoths, um, eventually you won't need them. Like, like many behemoths. <laughs> they, yeah. they, 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 they become extinct. Yeah. I, I have a little bit of background only as a former chairman of the Yarmouth Town Council. We have the Wyman Station in Yarmouth. And, and I, will, I will talk in general terms because it's been a few years and I don't remember the specifics, but that is one of those large um, 
oil. Is it oil number three, the heavy sludgy yeah. oil that gets pumped in? And because of the inefficiency of the oil-based plant, it only operates and only supplies power three, four, five percent on demand. Yep. But the the Federal Energy uh, Consortium uh, Commission, yeah. Commission has plants like that online that have government contracts to make sure that we have capacity if there's a disaster, to make sure they're plugged into the grid. Yep. But a tremendous amount of money and energy is wasted, in effect, having that plant just idle because yep. it's a huge, uh, I think there's three separate uh, oil uh, boilers there. And the other issue is you talked about the grid, which is another infrastructure thing that fascinates me. Apparently in New Hampshire, there's a bottleneck in the grid. So even if we were able to produce more energy here at the Wyman station or other stations, only so much energy. It's like having an hourglass where energy, you know, they've got excess capacity down in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, but it can't come up here because... There's like a bottleneck in New Hampshire. It's, it's that way all over the country. There are bottlenecks all over the country. Yeah, Be, that, because the infrastructure was set well, decades it, ago yeah, and nobody yeah, anticipated yeah, yeah. the development? Or? It goes back to 1935 when they, when they passed the Federal Power Act. Okay, That's when they established uh, regional monopoly utilities. You know, there was a time in this country when utilities were competing for the same customers. You'd have a street and you'd have two or three sets of power lines going down the street from the different wow. companies. And so... And that it, wasn't sustainable? No, 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 it wasn't sustainable. So they, they said, look, we're going to go to a monopoly business model where a, a region is served by a utility and that utility will then be regulated. Okay, that was the beginning of the public utility commissions. The problem with that is that these these individual utilities built around their region. And so you have hundreds of utilities around the country that all have their little fiefdoms. And then as we progress, we realize we need to be swapping power back and forth more and more often. But the fact of the matter is the national grid really wasn't built with that in mind. And so there are naturally a lot of inefficiencies. Again, with renewable power, it, it you, you don't have those problems, right? Because it, it, it's more it, it, local focused, yeah. and it's in you know every mile that you're not transmitting the power, it's more efficient, less infrastructure, less replacement, less maintenance, all of those things. And, right? and in the in the next few years, uh, energy storage is going to be feasible. They're getting very close with it, and the stations like in Yarmouth, they mm. will be dinosaurs because think about just replacing that whole station with a battery. That's all that that's all that station is acting like is a battery. So uh, it will uh, be with with renewable energy and energy storage technology, it will absolutely revolutionize how power is generated and distributed in the United States and around the world. You know, I wanted to buy the station. I went to Deb. Really? And maybe you could chip in. And before I forget, 1935, the Energy Act that our guest Chris Sauer talked about. Mm -hmm. What was that like back then? It was amazing. Was it? <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember reading about it? Oh, sure. There was something? You, sure. You I must was, have been a young girl. I was an active yeah. activist back then, too. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. But yeah. Back but, when you talked about the Great War. Back, oh, the good old. Because there was only going to be one. Yeah, World yeah. War One. Yeah, and now you know, Deb was around for that too. Sure. Oh, the good old days, Deb. <laughs> Prohibition. What right. were you going to do with that uh, with power one? station? Well, again, round numbers, but Wyman at one point, 15, 20 years ago, was valued, I think, at about $200 million. 
and it was the largest taxpayer in Yarmouth. So it represented almost half of our tax base. And as the usage of the plant went down and down, and also the oil um, reservoir that they kept there, which the town would tax on, it went from $200 million to like $20 million. And so it's gone from like half the tax base to like 5%. And so specific to Yarmouth, because it's located on Cousins Island in Yarmouth, it has really had a fairly devastating impact in terms of the local tax base because the town was built on support and infrastructure for the biggest taxpayer. And then you have this giant power plant sitting out on the ocean. And the challenge is, even if it shut down this year or next year, the wind down is about a decade because all kinds of energy commission stuff, EPA, DEP, there's this sludgy oil that, uh, you know, has to be completely removed. And it's actually one of the nicest pieces of real estate in Maine out on Cousins Island. Anyone who's done any boating up the coast or driven by, you see this giant power plant, but it really is kind of this, uh, this fossil of a, of a different error. Yeah. But the good news is it's tied into the grid. So it, to your point, everyone's looked at, could it be converted to natural gas? And it's like, no, there's no way to get the gas out there. Can it be used for somebody? Somebody proposed to the town council a few years ago making it a casino. I, I don't know why, because there's only a tiny ro- road that gets out there through Yarmouth. But at some point, you know, I, I believe in the next 10, 20 years, it'll no longer function as an energy provider. And at that point, something else has to happen with it. So, you know, I remember somebody from there, you know, called me up a couple of years ago saying, hey, do you want to buy the energy plant? And uh, it's obviously a more detailed process working with the, because it is under government contract. They get paid basically just to idle. Yep. Yeah, that's reserve. They they have a contract reserve where, so, and typically in the summer in July or August, if it goes above 89 degrees and the demand is greater with air conditioning or in the wintertime, then all of a sudden they fire it up. But for the most time, there's five guys out there, whatever it is, and they're just sitting around eating Subway sandwiches, you know, listening to their radio, doing maintenance on the, on the boilers and, and they bid. Can, can you explain how the energy bid works? Because I always thought that's fascinating. Every day they wake up and these power plants yep. within the ISO grid or within the New they, England grid, they bid on supplying energy. On an hourly and, basis. On an hourly basis. And in the case of Wyman, unless it's like a huge high demand yeah. a couple times a year, they always lose the bid. And it's like the Maytag repairman in reverse. So every day they wake up and they go, we're going to bid on providing energy and, and, and push it into the grid and then the bids are opened and it's like, Wyman, you're way too expensive. Shut it down or, not, or just don't even turn it on. And the same five guys are eating their Subway sandwiches go, yeah, we lost another bid. And it, happens every, it happens every day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the way the, uh, that's the, way the system works now. Energy, uh, basically electricity itself, is separated from the transmission distribution and use. So uh, basically every hour... The grid goes out for bids on who can be the who can supply the cheapest power that's needed. They know how much is going to be needed. They go out, they get a bid, and they get the cheapest power. And stations like Wyman are not competitive, except in the extreme cases where electricity gets up to you know seventy, eighty cents kilowatt hour. Right. We have Chris Sauer here. He is co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewable Power Company. So now that we've talked about fossil fuels, 
1935, you know. Which was a very good year. A very good year for Deb. Let's talk about uh, Ocean Renewable Power Company. And if you wouldn't mind, you know, explaining what the company is, what the mission is, and then we'll talk about kind of policy and, and sure, what Ocean sure. Renewable Power is. Yeah, let me, uh, if I could, I'd like to start with, uh, it, it, as I explained, I've had pretty much my whole career in the electricity business. And uh, in 2004, when we started the company, I was uh, actually just finishing up my second startup. I was living in Florida. Um, and we got introduced to this idea. A, uh, one of the co-founders, a, a good friend of mine, John Cooper, who uh, he and I had uh, both worked in the cogeneration business year, for years, uh, we, we got uh, presented this opportunity to, to uh, through a, a gentleman, uh, Paul Wells, in Florida, who had came up with this idea of trying to generate electricity from the from the Florida Current. The Florida Current being the southernmost piece of the Gulf Stream as it goes by the coast of Florida. They call it the Florida Current. It's essentially a huge river 15 miles offshore within the ocean that's constantly moving from south to north. That's the one that goes completely around past Europe and uh, so it's a, a big body of water. So, um, and again, I'm from the Midwest. What do I know about oceans? But I do know the electricity. So business. the current being different than tide. So tide yes, is it's something. It's a constantly flowing. And it's I'll going. Get, I'll get to it's that. Like in a jet, a it's like a jet stream. But you know that first project had yeah. to do with ocean current, which is a constant uh, river in the ocean. So, what really struck me at the time was I had never really thought about it. Uh, you know, seventy percent of the Earth is covered in water. In the, and that water's constantly moving. And anybody that's been uh, in the ocean and hit by a wave, you know there's a lot of energy in water. It's, you know, 835 times denser than air. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot of energy around the world in this 70% of water that's moving around. And interestingly, not if you just think about it, almost everybody lives near water, either near an ocean, near a river, uh, near a lake. And, and so... Uh, the inspiration at the time was somehow if you could harvest just a small amount of that energy and deliver it to shore to where it's used because most people live there, it would completely transform how electricity is generated and distributed worldwide. It would be a completely different paradigm. When you talk about energy specific to the ocean or kind of water, aqua energy, is it the kinetic energy of the motion? Yes, it's kinetic energy. In fact, the name of our industry is called Marine Hydrokinetic, MHK. The fact that I even remembered kinetic from fourth grade yeah. science is impressed. sort of amazing. As opposed to potential, right? Potential. Potential uh, yeah. energy and kinetic energy. And so, yes. Well, that's, that's the basis of this. So what we do... Uh, so anyway, so that was the inspiration for starting the company. We were initially focused on the ocean currents, but as we got into it, we realized that there was a nearer-term opportunity and we thought would be easier to look at tidal currents and river currents. So the, the basic uh, uh, technology we developed is just taking the kinetic energy from moving water, converting that into electricity, and bringing it to shore. So whether it's uh, the Gulf Stream, whether it's tidal, which is coming, in, coming and going, or whether it's rivers, it all has to do with water that's moving. Uh, we developed these turbines, the water impacts the turbines, it turns the turbines, the turbines turn the generator, and the generator generates electricity, and we bring it to shore. And it's all underwater, so you don't see a thing. Mm. Um, so uh, that's, that was the, the basic uh, concept. 
uh, early on. We, we were lucky. We developed a relationship with a, a, a group under the U.S. Navy called the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Carteract Division. Some people may have heard uh, the term Carteract. That's what they're uh, referring to. This is like 5,000 scientists, PhDs, uh, engineers around the world that are responsible for everything the Navy has in the water. And uh, we were fortunate. We qualified to uh, work under a, what's called a CRADA, Cooperative Research and Development Agreement, to develop the basic concept of our technology. Uh, we did that, completed that in 2006. And so that's th- when was we it came. a Navy project when you mentioned under no, that group? No, it, it, was it was different because uh, we as a private sector company were actually hiring the Navy as a consultant. Wow. Um, and... Um, yeah, so it was an interesting. So nobody, I think it's counterintuitive a little bit, would think of the Navy as being involved with the science of the ocean as well as kind of, you know, people I think gravitate towards the military function. If you think of Navy, and particularly here in Maine with Bath Ironworks, and we have the Zumalt, we have all the ships and the submarines down in, down in New Hampshire. But it makes sense that if the U.S. Navy has the most experience and the most invested in understanding the ocean and also power that they should play a role. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And they they know the uh, harsh environment under the ocean. And that was our concern was that whatever we design is going to be sitting, uh, you know, in ocean water in the ocean environment. And it's, uh, uh, we got to make sure it's going to be rugged enough. So they, they were very helpful in that regard. And, and then we took that basic design. And from that, we developed uh, from the, the basic technology, which is what we call a TGU, turbine generator unit. We made it smaller and developed a system for rivers, and we made it bigger to develop a system for uh, tidal sites. And and uh, uh, that uh, that's what's led us to Maine, honestly, because uh, at the being at the mouth of the Bay of Fundy, Maine has great tidal currents. We were a virtual company at the time, and so um, we uh, located here in 2008. Uh, I'm a CEO, and I have a certain prerogative about where we locate the company, and I've been a 30-year, part-year resident of Maine, and I love Maine, so we said, we're going to Maine. Wow. And wow. we, I have to say we are also uh, being welcomed uh, by the, the business community and, at that time, the political community in, in Maine, so that was a big big factor in it. People like Maine Technology Institute were instrumental. You, you say at the time, and I want to get into kind of the policy of renewable energy, are you still welcome? Do you go, does our present uh, governor uh, welcome the idea of renewable or is it? Um, n- not renewable. He, he, uh, uh, governor LePage has never uh, done anything to hurt us. And it, it's just that the environment is different now. Um, it's uh, it's really more based on who has the lowest price, and honestly, right now we can't compete with with the lowest price uh, relative to renewables. You're talking and, about solar or wind, or yeah, even even uh, terrestrial wind. You know, it's down to uh, maybe five or six cents a kilowatt hour. We're not there yet, and we're not going to be there for years. So we took a different approach. We looked around the world at where are there high cost power markets. And uh, there, it turns out there's a significant uh, uh, portion of the energy uh, uh, industry that is in remote communities. Uh, These are communities that are not tied to a grid. Uh, There's over 700 million people in the world that live in remote communities and are solely dependent upon diesel for their generation. And they pay electricity prices anywhere from 50 cents to $1.50 a kilowatt hour. Wow. 
So there's no there. We call them islanded communities because whether you're on an island surrounded by water, literally or figuratively, yeah, you're or isolated. whether you're in uh, right. one of our projects is in Igiagig, Alaska. It's 280 miles southwest of Anchorage, and it's surrounded by vast expanses of land. But there's no grid. There's no fuel pipelines. There's uh, there's no nothing indigenous there, other than renewable energy resources. They happen to be on great rivers or in the case of Eastport, Maine, in a, in a, in a great tidal site. Um, so that's where we focused our efforts. And if you look at where are the greatest, greatest concentrations of these types of communities, uh, it's in Canada. And so we're, we're really uh, much more focused on uh, Is Canada, uh, Canada a leader in, in either hydropower or renewable ocean tidal? Well, they're in, in, hydro, in conventional hydropower, Hydro-Quebec is, I don't know, third or fourth in the world in terms of right. uh, capacity from hydro. Uh, so they know the hydro world. And by the way, they are very supportive of what we're doing because this is, in a sense, an extension of hydro. Marine hydrokinetics is is it has some similarities to hydro. Similar engineering, you're you're basically creating energy from the flow of either rivers or yeah. oceans, and and as you mentioned, the turbine. Yeah, Once you have a mechanical uh, effect of the water, and you can convert that through coil system and generate electricity, then yeah. you, you you put the energy somewhere. Yeah, the, the basic difference between the two is hydro depends on a buildup of pressure. And so the turbines run on a pressure differential. That's why you have the dams in order to create this huge pressure. And the marine hydrokinetics is really simple. It's just velocity. It's all about velocity. Wow. In, and you need a stock pin in the hydro. Deb, do you know I have a background in hydro energy? Uh, no. I don't. We have a mill here, Sparhawk <laughs> Mill, which I once uh, looked at in terms of uh, potentially buying. And it has its own little hydro plant with only like three little hydro generators. Okay. And at the time, two of them was, were broken, oh, but okay. one of them worked. And it basically, there was a pin that as the water comes over one of the dams in the Royal River, it kind of grabs more of the water and it creates more power or pressure. And then that goes into the hydro generator underneath the building. Hmm. And I think at this point, it only creates enough energy for one or two light bulbs. But the promise of it being yeah. more effective well, it, was certainly it, there. Actually, the you can go way back in history. In uh, in 900 something A.D. in uh, in uh, in Ireland, they really had the first tide mill, and that was basically uh, these mills that were located on tidal estuaries. And when the water came in, the they trapped wheel. it, and it was a paddle wheel, and that's how they ground their grains or or did whatever. So uh, a tidal <laughs> energy goes back. You know, we've got Chris Sauer here. Who told you I was from Ireland? I mean, this, you know, did, it was me. You I, told I it, yeah. my my ancestors all came from Ireland. So well, not you, that who I remember. Knows? They may have been working on a title uh, mill there. I think they probably were. We were in County Court, and yeah, uh, yeah I love Ireland. Yeah, but oh, you were in County Cork. Well, uh, you I'm should sh- know University of Cork and University in Cork is uh, one of our partners. We actually have a subsidiary, uh, ORPC Ireland. Wow. We have an office in Dublin, and we won a uh, very large grant from the European Union to do a lot of research on our, our technology. So UCC is one, is uh, one of our key partners. I was just there a couple of years ago yeah. and traveling all over. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and I the kissed guy the Blarney that, Stone. The guy that uh, heads our uh, operations there is a graduate of UCC. So. What a small, small world. world. Yeah. You, ever, you ever seen the whole Blarney Castle? No, I have Blarney? not. 
Yeah, I've been you, to Ireland, but I have not but seen But you've it heard the story, you know, kissing the Blarney Stone. It's a real thing. You yeah. go to this castle, then you climb up about 200 stairs, and then there's a stone there, and tourists line up to kiss the stone. And yeah. then there's a guy, and uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know his name, but I'm sure it's an Irish name, you know. Uh, sure. You know, Billy, and he has some, like, Windex or something, and he keeps cleaning off the stone because otherwise you'd have thousands of people kissing the no same. Kidding. Yeah, yeah, what a job. Wow, and you were one of those people who waited yeah. in line. Yeah, well, you got to tilt over, and then you kiss up the stone, but it was oh, like, wow. I love Ireland. Yeah, well, we, uh, I will tell you, uh, our chief technology officer, Jarliff McEntee, is from Ireland. Wow. And uh, I consider him a genius. He's uh, I've, I've dealt with engineers my whole life. I've never... Uh, uh, I've never seen a, uh, worked with a better engineer than uh, than Jarlith, and uh, he's very Irish. His family, his uh, his mother still lives there, and his sisters. So we have a strong connection with Ireland, and it just so happens that uh, Ireland has good uh, tidal currents. So, well, we have Chris Sauer here. He is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewable Power Company. Their website is orpc.co. Um, let's talk about. I've got a bunch of articles here about uh, your group getting various research grants. How does that work? And is Ocean Renewables a private company, a nonprofit, a think tank? And how does it work that you apply for and have relationships that generate, you know, in this one case I'm reading, $5.3 million of research grants? And what what is the mission of this particular research grant and is it based on refining the technology refining the systems and uh, how is ocean renewable power company funded okay let me start with we are a for-profit company we just haven't generated profits yet gotcha. uh, so um, the uh, we started out uh, with the idea that we were going to develop uh, projects, much like we had done in the cogeneration business days, where we would simply buy equipment and we would uh, basically do tidal energy using other people's equipment. We would develop the projects. We'd own and operate them. We'd sell electricity. But it turned out that there were no commercial systems available. So we had to backward integrate into uh, developing our own technology, which turned out to be a great advantage. It's turning out to be a great advantage today. So um, everything we do is geared towards one thing, and that is uh, perfecting our technology to the point that we are uh, commercially viable, profitable in terms of selling power systems and or developing projects that use our power systems, and in which case we'd sell the electricity uh, to make a profit. So we started from zero. I mean, we started with a, a, a clean sheet of paper. We developed a concept. We did a prototype demonstration in uh, Maine here in 2007, 2008. By the way, that was funded by a small amount of private equity, but by uh, uh, Maine Technology Institute, and some of it came from the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative. We learned a lot. We went to the next phase, which was a much bigger uh, demonstration project. Um, that we won a huge grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. They are... Uh, always looking for new uh, renewable technologies and they're supporting them with grants. These are highly competitive uh, solicitations that they go out for. They, they bring in experts from all over the world to vet your technology. We, in fact, we've been very fortunate uh, to date. 
uh, we've raised almost $80 million, and over $41 million of that has come from state and federal, mostly federal grants. And they uh, have come from the U.S., from, from Canada, from uh, the European Union. What's happening is people see the potential for this new industry and the impact that it can have, and particularly in these remote communities. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we're focused on these islanded communities. These are, these are communities that are kind of the underserved and forgotten people of the world. They're mostly indigenous people. And so there's a real emphasis now that we've, we've got to get this technology to the point where it's on its own, uh, it's profitable, and it's reducing the costs of electricity and greatly uh, uh, reducing or eliminating the environmental risks that are in, you know, being experienced in these remote communities. So, so the DOE is in the forefront of that in the U.S., there are state organizations that are helping. In Maine, it's the Maine Technology Institute. In Alaska, it's the Alaska Energy Authority. In the, U- in the European Union, it's called Horizon 2020. And one of the things I'm really proud of with our company is uh, we have a 70% success rate uh, on every uh, grant application that we submitted. So we win 70% of what we submit. Uh, and that's why we're at uh, over 41 million in grants uh, today. They are critical because um, although we're getting close to the point of uh, being what you would call commercial technology, we're not quite there yet. And so the private sector doesn't want to uh, shoulder on its own the risk of developing this technology to the point where it's commercial. So uh, having uh, government and investing in it allows us to then go out to the private sector and raise the private money because the government money is not dilutive. It doesn't, they're not taking a piece of the company. So it's an incentive for investors to come in. And we've been uh, very successful over the years in, in playing that combination. We're, we're basically 50% uh, government funding, 50% private funding. Uh, it's been a winning formula for us. Uh, as we get further along, that will uh, dramatically change. There will be just a small amount of government funding, and the rest will be uh, the private sector because we'll be profitable at that point. Yeah, I think there's a history, too, that goes into the space program and other programs where without the government subsidizing or the government really kind of bearing the heavy load, we never would have technology breakthroughs or we would never have, whether it's materials or production. And so... um, yeah, I, well, I, the fracking today, right? A few years ago, was a DOE R and D project. They put hundreds of millions of dollars into the research on fracking. So we wouldn't have fracking today if it wasn't for R and D money from the U.S. government going into it. It's just that simple. It's yeah. critical. Some people would argue that that may not be. A, it's unlike Tang, which I think came from the space program, the Apollo program, which is delicious, by the way. Which is still being sold locally. Oh by yes, the way. it is a delicious uh, beverage. Uh, we have Chris Sauer here. He is the co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewable uh, Power Company. We have just a few minutes left. We've talked about producing power through either tidal, through the ocean, or through rivers. People, I think, are familiar with windmills because they're above ground. People can see them. They're pretty easy to conceptualize that the wind blows, the, the giant uh, wind turbines create power. I'm looking at a picture and also kind of a rendering here showing, I think, your tide gen unit or river gen unit. And it looks like one of those old uh, hand-pushed lawnmowers with like the cylindrical blades and elongated. 
But talk about the technology itself. Sure. So all this investment in engineering, and you've been an engineer for decades. What is unique about the engineering and the breakthroughs that have gone into this and how that translates into you know, bringing this closer to commercial use and ultimately consumer benefit? Yeah. By the way, we don't use the term blade in the context of something rotating underwater in the presence of fish. We call them foils. Foils. And, and, that's a, and it's, it's for a good reason. If you did a cross-section of one of our turbine foils, it looks just like an airplane wing. And it's the exact same principle. So in, in an airplane, you have to have an engine to get the, the, the plane to move fast enough that the air uh, gives the wings lift. In our case, we just sit there and the water is what has the velocity and the water impacts our foils and gives them lift. And that's and, kind of counterintuitive. Even with planes, people think that the jet is making the plane go up and down. The, the jet engines or the propulsion makes it go forward, and the shape of the wing creates high pressure yeah. and low pressure, which literally pulls the plane up yeah. as opposed to— That's right. So uh, you, could, you could put a tether on an, on an airplane and just let it sit there on the runway and tie it down, and if there was a 150-mile-an-hour wind, it would go up in the air. It's the same principle. The turbines turn— and the generator are all on a single shaft. There's actually only one moving part in our whole system. It happens to be a big part. It's our turbines and our generator rotor that are turning. So the generator turns. It generates electricity. We have an underwater power cable that then goes to shore and connects to the grid. So you don't see a thing. Okay. It, there's nothing uh, on top of the water. Okay, so here's the nitty-gritty. Now, the windmill blades are killing birds. Are your turbines killing fish? No. Uh, they aren't, and there's a good reason for it. And, and uh, a few years ago when we started, we could explain in, in physics why it wouldn't happen. But in fact, after doing 11 different deployments in the water, and we monitor every one of them, the most recent of which we had five cameras on this thing, and we put it in the uh, Quijek River in Igiaga, Alaska, which doesn't mean anything to you, but it's the prime salmon fishing grounds in the United States. Right. The best salmon fishing in the U.S., and we were there during the peak of salmon season. Nearly, nearly two million fish went by this thing. Not a single fish mortality. Not one. So the reason is, when these foils turn, the water impacting the foils basically creates a little pressure buildup in the front, just like with an airplane wing. If you ever see those 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 right, uh, the the air tunnel things, there's a, a pressure buildup. So the fish swim up to the turbines, and they feel it like a solid object, and they swim around it, under it. They don't actually impact uh, the turbine itself. I mean, how many fish kill themselves by swimming into a bridge pier? Very. I don't know the research on that. I don't either. I don't I'm know. Sorry. But it but it makes sense. Yeah. So and and now we have the data to prove it. We have a, a very sophisticated, essentially like fish finders that we we use. We have cameras. We have, and after hundreds and hundreds of hours of data. In all of our projects, there has never been a fish mortality, not one. That's a great statement. So now we're not saying that someday, you know, there might be one or, but the fact of the matter is, uh, even with the regulatory agencies now, they've gotten past this. They now realize that this is not, it, it has a very, very minimal impact. Our, our project here in, in Maine, which was the first uh, title project to deliver power to the grid, we had to get a FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, license. As part of that, we had to do an annual environmental report. And the bottom line on that report, which was reviewed by all the agency, is there's no known adverse impact 
to the environment from our well, equipment. And now you've got the Debbie Davis uh, certification. I think the answer <laughs> satisfies. Yeah, satisfying. I'm, all, I'm fine. Yeah, hey, I'm final question. By the way, we're, we're running out of time. We've got Chris Sauer here. He's the co-founder and CEO of Ocean Renewable Power Company based here in Maine, in Portland, Maine. What about the mechanical aspect of any time you put something metal in the ocean, there is not only the salt, which is corrosive, but also if you're moving metal, anyone that has a boat in the ocean knows that you have to put in zinc and you have yep. to ground electricity. Cathodic protection. Uh, see, if I took that extra science course, yeah. I was lucky I knew kinetic but you're right. So w- what is the quick engineering the, on how your materials, are they well, metallic the, and how do you avoid the, the, the corrosion? Uh, the, the corrosion part of our engineering is fascinating. Honestly, it is fascinating because you have dissimilar metals, which tend to be like Alka-Seltzer in, uh, right. in the ocean. The short answer is you put in what they call sacrificial anode. So the way you, you, the electricity is going to happen, so you put in something on there that let it happen to that first. A zinc and material? Zinc, zinc anodes we put on there. Like a boat, like an like ocean boat. boat. That's right. And so the zinc eventually disappears, but the rest of the system's fine. That's and, the short answer. Wow. Fascinating. Well, I'd love to have you come back because uh, I think we've, we, we could talk about bridges again, tunnels. We've, yeah. we've covered coal. Thanks yeah. so much for coming here and good luck with your venture. And I think anything that, uh, works on on energy and renewable and technology is good for all of us and it's good for Maine, the business you bring here to Maine. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, we've had Chris Sauer here. He is the CEO, co-founder of Ocean Renewable Power Company. Their website is orpc.co. You've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. We'll be back next week.